0: Uh, we're going to go on with Acts 13. This is Paul preaching in Antioch. Let me just start with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to thank you from the bottom of our heart for the Lord Jesus and for the wonderful way you developed your plan through the thousands of years from Adam and Eve onwards right up to us. And we thank you that you want us to be part of that plan. We pray that you'll open our eyes to your word and that you will teach us of your ways and that we might go your way. And go that way to the end and live forever when all this stuff is all said and done in this world. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Right, so just to pick up where we left off before, verse 17, he's given a sermon here and he's going through the history of Israel. And he says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exhorted the people when they sojourned in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm he led them out of it. Well, I said that when Israel were in Egypt, that's like us being in the world. And then the Red Sea parted, and that's like baptism. There was water both sides of them, a cloud on top of them, and the cloud is just water. And so Paul says they were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. And so that opens up this, this great kind of, um, well, picture, or type you could call it, that we were in Egypt in the world, but then we were led through the waters of baptism You don't come out straight away in the promised land, you come into the wilderness. And that's what this world is, spiritually. And we walk through that, through this life, and then we get to the promised land, the everlasting life in God's kingdom. Yet it says there, verse 17, that God brought them out with a strong arm. They didn't actually want to come. They actually said to Moses, let us, yeah, we don't like it here, but let's stay here. So God actually pulls you, kicking and screaming. That's the wonderful thing of his grace. And if anybody wants to be baptized, come back to my place afterwards. Get baptized in the big bathtub and start that journey. And then it says about verse 18, for 40 years as a nursing father, God carried them in the wilderness. And I said it last week, but I'll repeat it. What a lovely figure. It's typically a woman who is the nursing mother holding the little child to her breast. But it says this is a nursing father. It's a sort of tragic figure of a man who doesn't have a wife, doesn't have a woman, uh, but he's got this fragile little infant and he does his best with this, this little child, carrying this little child in the desert. And that's the picture of God's love for Israel as he carried them through the wilderness. And that is the picture of God's love for you and me after baptism, carrying us through this life, through our path in this world and to his kingdom. And when he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, you see, they came out of Egypt, they went through the desert, and they came to Canaan, or Israel. And God destroyed seven nations there and gave them their land for an inheritance for about 450 years. Well, there were actually, when you read Genesis, it says there were ten Arab nations, or let's say local nations, in Canaan, but God only destroyed seven of them. And just a a little point, ten and seven... There were ten there, but seven were destroyed. In the New Testament, you read about a beast that dominates the land. And I suggest the land is the land of promise. The land of Israel, the land promised to Abraham, with ten heads and seven horns. Ten and seven again. And I'll just put that to you. um, That what the Bible is envisaging in the last days is some confederacy of local nations That dominate like a beast the land of Israel. And that is what you are seeing beginning to happen with all this Hamas and all that stuff. So is Jesus going to come soon? Well I don't know. For sure. But if you are baptized into Jesus, if you are secure in him, then whether he comes next week or many years, millennia, after you're dead and gone, doesn't matter. You are with the Lord and you will live forever because he lives. So... They came into that land and God didn't give them a king, Twenty, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet, he was the last judge. So they then asked for a king, verse 21, they asked for a king and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. But when they asked for a king, God was really upset because he said, I'm your king and you want a, you want a king, I'm your king. Oh, no, but we want a visible king. We want something visible. It's like all of us. We want something visible that we can see with our eyes. To say, oh, you know, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. So where's Jesus? Where is God? Well, I believe in him. Oh, yeah, but I want to see something. Paul says that faith is what you can't see. You know, if there's a sign up in the the sky that says there is a God, or there's a sort of God located, let's say, 500 metres above Above the earth, or you know, it's a couple of kilometers, let's say, up in the sky, and sort of waves down at us every now and again. Well, yeah, um, but that wouldn't be faith. And so this is a thing: people always want something visible, whereas faith is what you cannot see. And that's why faith means trust. It means to trust in that which you cannot physically see. So then they wanted a visible king, and this guy God gave them Saul is a bad guy. And he says later on in Hosea, I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. So they got what they wanted. He said, okay, if that's what you really want, I'll give it to you. This is quite a theme with God that he does give you, he gives man what man really wants. Another example with a temple when David said, oh, I want to build you a temple. Physical, stones, mortar, bricks and mortar. And God said, no, I don't want a temple. Um, I live, my tabernacle lives in a tent. A tent is quite good enough for me. I don't live in temples made with hands. I live in the hearts of people. Oh, no, no, but they wanted to build a temple. Solomon got really carried away with this. Okay, God said, fine, you want to have a physical temple, you can have one. Here's the specifications, all the best. And yes, I will come and dwell through my glory. What the Jews called the Shekinah, the, the, the physical, like, bright light, I suppose, of God's glory did dwell there. But that was not what God ideally wanted. He said, I don't want a temple. Ah, but we want a temple. Okay, have one. It's the same here. We want a king. Well, I'm your king. You're rejecting me. Ah, but we want one. Okay, have one. And it reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son, that the father is like God. And this not very nice son comes to him and says, give me right now the inheritance. And he says, okay, I'll give it to you. But he knew for sure that the son was going to go and blow it on wine, woman and song. And that's what, what happened. But he gave, <coughs> he gave the boy what he really wanted. And that's how it is, that you will get, in a funny way, your heart's desire. If your heart's desire is to be in God's kingdom, is to be God's man or woman in this world, you will be. You may say, well, oh, but I'd really like to be a millionaire. I'd love to, uh, I'd love to have, you know, a really classy house out in the countryside. And I'd love to have a brand new Mercedes and unlimited spending money. Come on, God. Well, if I really want it, why doesn't God give it to me? Well, the reason you don't get it is because actually that is not your heart's desire. It's not your passion, you're not thinking about it all the time. But if your passion is for God, if that is your heart's desire, he will give it to you. And that just points up, I think, the, the huge importance of the state of your heart, the state of your mind. Where's your heart? What do you really want? Because he will get it. And if your desire above all things, I just want to please you, God, and I want to live forever with you in your kingdom when all this all this stuff is over and done, yeah you will get it. If that's what you really want, your sins, weaknesses, and the rest of it, notwithstanding, you will get what you really want. So, the question is, what is our dominant desire? What do you really want, more than anything else in the world? If you really do want, more than anything else in the world, a Mercedes and a, a mansion, you know, out in the countryside, well, maybe you get it. If that's your total obsession. But, I think with us here, we... Yeah, you can say no to it, but it's not actually our total obsession. That's why we didn't get it. Because we're not materialists in that, you know, crude, empty sort of empty headed sense. So then, he gave them what they wanted. That's my point. He gave them Saul, who was not a good guy, for 40 years. And when he'd removed him, he raised up David to be their king. To whom also he bare witness, and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who shall do all my will. I have found David. So, God was out there looking. He thought, no, this Saul is no good. I'm going to try and find a man who will be my man. And he's searching around. And then, ah, there's the guy. There's David. I found him. And this is a profound truth, that God is in search of man. There's a passage in Jeremiah 5 where Jeremiah runs to and fro in the streets of Jerusalem, all around the squares, everywhere, to show how God actually is searching for people. To see, he said, if there was any who loved God, who went wanted to go his way. And you see in the parables of the lost that there's the woman who loses her coin And she searches until she finds it. There's the shepherd who loses his sheep. And he searches until he finds it. This is all talking really about how God is searching for us. He's looking for us. So don't think that God is kind of distant. That God is disengaged. That God is sort of passive that he's the old man up in the sky who's sort of with one eye sort of occasionally looks down here on earth and that's sort of it no he is more proactive than that he's not saying look I gave you my son I gave you my word so well, I think it's your turn guys you make a move toward me now beyond that God is in search of man and you and me have been in search for God we wouldn't actually be here unless we were and so We were in search of God, but he was in search of us and we met. And then there was this electric moment when God was in search of us and we were in search for him and we met. And that's why, as the Lord teaches, all the angels of heaven rejoice when there is that meeting between God and man, when you get baptized, when you give your heart and your soul to him and you surrender, hands up, all for him, there is that meeting and that electric moment, where all the angels of heaven rejoice, the whole cosmos is kind of, kind of electric with joy because of it. It's amazing. And This is what goes on. God works this, as Job would say, oftentimes in man. That He wants to meet us. He is not passive. He is not a God afar off. He's a God near at hand. So he's, He was looking for a man, and He finds David, the son of Jesse. Well, we said this before. Uh, we were looking at Jeff, uh, David the other day, were not we, uh, at the pub? That David had seven older brothers. Had seven older brothers, and he was the kid run around. And he also says in the Psalms, "In sin did my mother conceive me." And we talked about that, and I said, I don't think it means that every time a woman gets pregnant, that's kind of oh, hang, that's a huge sin. No, that's not what he meant. When he said, "In sin did my mother conceive me," he meant what he meant that his mum had had a fling, or his dad had had a fling, and, well, he was the result thereof. And so he was the outsider, he was the half-brother, I suggest. And he had seven older brothers. Even if he was their full brother, he was the kid brother, he was the runaround. And so his job was to mind the sheep in the wilderness. And we're told he was red-headed. And I said to you, do you know any Middle Eastern people who are redheads? Well, very, very, very unusual. So, we tend to think a redhead is kind of cute. Oh, like our our Daniel, he's a redhead, and everyone, oh, Daniel, cute, cute little redhead, um, with freckles. Yeah, so we see it, that's not how they did. In their day, if you were a redhead, you were unusual. And the thing in those days was not to be different, it was to be normal as they saw it. And if you were a redhead, you were weirdo. And so he was the despised one. Even Goliath, when he comes out to fight Goliath, Goliath, it says, noticed that he was a redhead and he despised him. Well, you send this little skinny weirdo, uh, you know, to, to fight with me because David wins. So it's when it says, I found David, the son of Jesse. You know, God looked everywhere and he finds this kid who's stuck out in the desert looking after the sheep, and because he was all on his own, he came to think about God, and to write psalms and stuff like that. Yes, that's the one who God chose. And so as you go out there on the streets of Croydon, full teeming with people, heaving with people, God is searching for man, and he sees you and he sees me. He's looking for someone who has got a heart for him, not someone who is pious and perfectly righteous, not that there is any such person. But he says, I found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Now what does that mean? And I, I'm not quite sure what it means, but I, I would say that you know, God's mind, God's heart in one sense is way above man. We, we don't fully have his mind. But you can, ha- you can be after God's own heart. That is, you can have a heart, a mind, that's what heart means in the Bible, a mind. You can have a mind that is after that of God. You can have a mind that wants to go his way. And that is what he saw in David. And when you look at the life of David, well, yeah, he he did do a lot of good things, especially when he was younger, Uh, but he was not perfect. He was definitely not perfect. And in fact, he did a massive amount of sin wrong treatment of women obviously the affair with Bathsheba got her husband killed who was one of his most loyal supporters a whole load of stuff broke up his ex-wife's marriage um, because she married somebody else to break that one up and just killing people left right and centre like human life doesn't mean nothing to them Um, there's a lot of problems with David but we know that, as Stephen says, he found grace in God's eyes. And you read here, he was a man after God's own heart. After. I think that's the force of the word, after. That he was a man who did think God's way and wanted to go God's way. And you read the Psalms, and he's got a lot of true spirituality. Yeah, and that is the, the difference, I suppose, between the saved and the not saved. It's not that we are more righteous, necessarily. It is that we have a heart or a mind that wants to go God's way. That, oh, I wish, I wish I could have the mind of Christ. You know, I read Philippians 2, where Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus at the time of his death on the cross. And Peter saying the same, "Arm yourselves likewise with the mind that Christ had as he suffered. Oh, Wow. I've got to walk down the streets of Croydon, and live my life here in Croydon, thinking with the mind of Jesus, especially the mind he had in his time of dying, wow, that just seems a massive challenge, a bridge too far between who I feel I am and who I should be, but it's who I want to be. That is the mind that I do definitely want to have. Absolutely, that is the mind I want to have. And so... That's being after God's own heart. Just like Jesus was after the... Sorry, David was after the heart of God. So, 23. Of this man's seed, this is David, has God, according to his promise, raised up to Israel a saviour, Jesus. So, of David's seed, God raised up a saviour, Jesus. What does that mean, that Jesus was the seed of David? Well, he was the descendant of David. And God said to David, You will have a son, and I will be his father. And he should be my son, but he will also be your son. Well, how that worked out was that David, through the generations, had a descendant called Mary, who was directly in his line. But God made Mary pregnant through the Holy Spirit so that the child she had was not the son of Joseph the child she had was the son of God because he had made Mary pregnant through the Holy Spirit and yet Jesus was a direct descendant of David it says verse 23 of this man's seed as God according to his promise raised up to Israel a saviour Jesus that you know you're reading here in English but this is all a translation of the Greek that word seed it's the word spermatos well, that's where the word sperm comes from, right? People tell me the Bible's boring, eh? <laughs> I never found it boring. Um, of this man's sperm, has God, according to his promise, raised up a Saviour, Jesus? Right? So, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, was directly in the line of David. Absolutely directly in that line. And yet, he was also the only begotten Son of God. And that's a wonderful thing. That Mary therefore. If Jesus was the true descendant of David. Well that was through his mother. Not through his father. Because his father was God. Right. So then Mary was directly in the line of David. But although she was in the kingly line. And she could have been if you like the queen of Judah. The queen of Israel. She was dirt poor. You know she was dirt poor. Uh, because she couldn't afford to offer the full sacrifice of cleansing when she had Jesus, when she circumcised him. Instead of offering a a ram or a sheep, she offers just two two birds, which are uh, just the, the offering of the poor. She was a poor woman when she gave birth. It wasn't in a palace, it was in a hotel. Well, not in a hotel, because there was no room in the inn. And so she had to go and sleep with the animals. And then she... She uh, went into labor, had the baby, and plonked the Son of God in a cattle trough. A manger, as it's called. A cattle trough. Right? So, this woman was poor. Definitely poor. And because she wasn't married, you can be sure that she was not much more than a teenager. Because most women in, in Palestine in those years got married. By the time they were you know, 17, 18, basically as soon as you could produce kids, as soon as you could you know, push out a kid or two, you were married. Right? And so she wasn't yet married. She was engaged, but she wasn't actually married. Right? So she was surely just a teenager. And a poor teenager at that. And yet, she was in the direct kingly line of David. For this promise to David to be fulfilled. That of this man's seed, of David's seed or descendant, David's uh, sperm, as I said, that's what a Greek word says, God has raised up to Israel a Saviour, Jesus. So, you see it, God's style, that He works through ordinary people, in fact, through very poor people in Mary's case. And in Mary's case, a woman who would have thought, well, wow, I'm actually in the, in the royal line of David, I'm somebody but I'm dirt poor and those sort of people it's really hard for them life is hard for them because they think well I was born I was born to better than this but you know I'm living in a a subdivided house or I'm homeless or I'm I'm living in a hotel room in here or there but I I was born to better than this my family were very wealthy whatever they might think you see Mary was like that but she was humble she was humble absolutely and she was the one God used, not some princess living in Jerusalem, you know, in a palace. No, this poor woman. Um, and those pictures you get, you know, every Christmas you see the Christmas cards, right? You know, there's, there's this picture of this pious young woman um, with this beautiful, calm baby, and the animals all happily in the uh, in the shed. No, it wasn't like that. That's rubbish. That's all fake. I mean, giving birth is a scary uh, a scary time for any woman. Uh, let's alone without your family with you. She's a long way from home. She's not married, which in those days was, uh-uh. You just didn't get pregnant if you weren't married. Uh, but she was pregnant and not married. Um, she was the only woman who'd ever become pregnant without a, a bloke. Um, and no one believed that, apart from her. Um, there's no room in the inn. They don't have any money much, and she's stuck in the stable, and oh hang, on. I'm going into labour. And she gives birth, what will I do with a baby? Puts it there in the cattle trough. It would have been smelly, it would have been dirty. Yeah, a terribly frightening experience. But that is what God works through. That is God's absolute style. So that is how the promise to David was fulfilled. Now the bread represents the body of the Lord Jesus and the the juice represents his blood which is a similar course of his life. And we take this to ourselves to show that I want to identify with his body. I want to identify with his life. Now of course above all you do that by living in him and by being baptised into his death and into his resurrection. Right, so let's, um, let's give a prayer of thanks for the, uh, for the bread and the juice. Heavenly Father, we take this bread as the symbol of our small part in the wonderful body of the Lord Jesus. And we take this juice as the symbol of his blood. Knowing that because he lives, we shall live also. Father, please help us then to identify with him, to be him, to live in him and for him. And may he, through his spirit, live in us and through us. And may we very soon meet him again when finally the heavens open and he shall return to this earth and establish your kingdom and we shall meet him and we shall be with him forever. Hasten the day, Father, when we shall take these symbols again with him. As he promised at his table in his kingdom for his sake.